0: Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. Today, I'm talking to David Velasquez, a student of medicine, public policy, and business at Harvard University. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Velasquez writes about navigating the unclear system of charity care after his father's costly hospital stay for a heart attack. Charity care is health care that is provided for free or at a reduced cost to eligible patients. His father had never been able to afford health insurance and was eligible for charity care at the hospital, but getting the high hospital bills waived was difficult, even with the help of his son, and the clock was ticking. David, we've published a number of policy papers about charity care, but this essay was the first for me to put a human face on just how complicated it is to receive it. What do you wish people knew about the charity care system in the U.S.?
1: Well, first, thank you so much for having me, Jessica. I'm really happy to be here. I think the first part is that people would need to know about it. You know, as, as I mentioned in the story, I didn't even know what charity care was. And at the time, I was a second year medical student. So, you know, an outsider might assume that I, that I would know what that is, but I didn't. And I've actually also seen lately, earlier this year, there was, there was a viral a video on social media. I'm not sure if you caught it, but it was on the topic of charity care. And just the general public was starting to learn that this charity care exists and that low-income patients can actually qualify for it. And that, I think, just shows how how hidden right? Some, some of these policies are when they should be available for low-income patients. So that's the first thing I, I, I wish that more people knew about it. And hopefully with a story like this, where we can put a face um, to the process, the more people will know about it and And secondly, I think I, I want people to know that they have the right, right, to ask for some of these policies while they're in the hospital system. Obviously, it's not the first thing that we should be thinking about. We should be worried about our health when we're in the hospital, but financials always do come into play. So just if if people knew, that they could ask for the charity care policy, that they could ask for financial assistance and such, I, I think would 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 go a long way for a lot of low income patients.
0: And in the essay, you also talk about some ways um, to improve charity care, but you say ideally, you know, these policies become moot during the Biden administration. So, what do you hope happens during this administration to make stories like yours less common?
1: Yeah, well, I think we've we've seen a start, you know, this year with the American Rescue Plan and. You know, I, I, we expect more people to to have health insurance. Hopefully, over the next couple of years, but those those policies, from my understanding, are temporary. And, and so, my hope is that over over the Biden administration's years, that we see you know an increasing number of people obtaining health insurance, whether that be through Medicaid and and more states expanding Medicaid because of you know greater incentives from the federal government, or more people obtaining health insurance because of increased subsidies, such as you know what we're seeing with the with the ARP. That that's my hope. My hope is that we can get more and more people insured. But also, you know, there there are other policies that that will impact that, right? And and we've seen over the last couple of months, for example, with the Biden administration and the immigration uh, policies that they've been putting out and how they're trying to get more undocumented people on a path to citizenship. I think even if we are to expand private health care. Through the marketplace subsidies and through Medicaid, undocumented residents currently won't qualify for those services. And so, if we can get a lot of these folks on path to citizenship and ultimately get them, you know, on Medicaid or on another another insurance plan, then then that'll get us, you know, a bit closer at least to to our vision of, of universal health care. Ideally, you know, we we have say a public option right at the end of this or something, but. Understanding the, the political hesitancy right, in, in reaching that stage, these these minor wins in terms of Medicaid, the marketplace subsidies, and I'd say immigration reform would be a major win. But with those three, I think we'd be on our path to to making charity care really moot and, you know, ensuring that everyone has comprehensive health care coverage.
0: David, thank you so much for joining us today. And now here's David Velasquez reading his essay, Charity Care Needs to Be Better Than This.
1: My alarm rang around 7 a.m. on the final day of my pediatrics rotation in Boston, Massachusetts. Groggy from a late night of studying, I slowly reached for my phone and noticed several unread messages and missed calls from my mother in California. My heart raced. This could not be good. Now alert, I opened my messages and saw a photograph of my father. He was in the emergency department. Just days earlier, My parents had moved into a new house after not being able to afford their previous home. On the eve of their final move-in day, my father began experiencing chest pain. That he mentioned it at all was striking. He rarely complained of any maladies. He grew up revolting against dictatorships in Nicaragua, which had inculcated in him a spirit of stoicism and machismo. Concerned, my mother first tried home remedies, a hot shower, mentholated ointment, and lime juice with salt, to soothe his pain. But it did not remit, and instead worsened. She implored him to seek medical treatment. They're going to rob me, he said in Spanish. He had never been able to afford private health insurance, and that year, his wages kept him from qualifying for Medicaid. When the pain became unbearable, however, he had no choice but to visit the local hospital. Chaos dominated the next 48 hours. My father, A limited English speaker with no past medical visits could understand neither his condition nor the treatment plan. They are injecting me with something, but I do not know what it is for, he told me over the phone. Fortunately, two years of medical school had taught me enough to explain to him the basics of heparin. The emergency physician communicated with my father through a Spanish speaking nurse and told him that he would be admitted but not sent for emergency treatment, given his normal lab results. My fear momentarily subsided until a follow-up electrocardiogram indicated a heart attack. He would be scheduled for an urgent cardiac catheterization. I spoke to the hospitalist for reassurance that he would receive exceptional care. I then spoke to my mother. Although deeply concerned about my father's condition, she also worried about the cost of the visit. Miho, how are we going to pay for this? I told her not to worry. We would figure it out. Meanwhile, my father mentally prepared for his procedure. They are taking me in for surgery, he quietly told me. He did not entirely understand the intervention, so I walked him through it and communicated that they would not be cutting him open. His tension eased slightly. That evening, I had finished studying for my pediatrics shelf exam when I received a phone call from a cardiologist at the hospital. The stent placement had gone well. There were no complications. I asked him a few questions, but his detailed answers quickly escaped my mind. Relief overtook me. After one more day in the hospital with a short stay in the intensive care unit for post operative hypotension, my father was discharged to our home by the hospitalist. Our relief did not last long, however. Four days later, my father received four bills in the mail one hospital bill, two physician bills, and an imaging bill. The hospital bill alone amounted to $118,449.30. It read, the balance shown is your responsibility and is now due and payable. Together, the four bills totaled more than $126,000, four times my father's income that year. When I spoke to him over the phone, he sardonically said, if the heart attack did not kill me, this will. I chuckled and panicked. The bill would be due in a few weeks, and we could not fathom earning even half that amount in an entire year. I had to find another way. My father first visited the public benefits office in Palmdale, California to inquire about Medicaid. We thought he might qualify retroactively for emergency assistance, but he had earned just enough money that year to surpass the income eligibility threshold of $22,108 for a family of two in California. He, like millions of other Americans, was stuck in the gap where he could not afford private marketplace health insurance, even with a subsidy, but made too much to qualify for Medicaid. Uncertain of our next steps, at this point I had started my obstetrics gynecology rotation, I sifted through information on medical debt and found a Kaiser Health News article that directed me to Justin Lowe, a legal director of Health Law Advocates Incorporated in Boston. In my email to him. I described my plan to head to the hospital during my one-week summer break to try to negotiate a more reasonable cost, such as the price that Medicaid would have paid for the services. To my relief, he responded the following night, and we spoke on the phone a few days later. Justin notified me that certain nonprofit hospitals must provide charity care to qualifying low-income patients. I had not heard of this mandate during medical school, and my father also never heard of such a policy. I called the hospital to ask about their charity care policy, and they directed me to an online document available only in English. This suited me, of course, but would have done nothing for my Spanish-speaking father. The accompanying financial assistance application only gave patients 14 days, presumably from the moment a bill is received, to submit a request. In the midst of my clinical rotations, 14 days had already passed. However. I managed to secure an extension by pleading with the hospital. My growing concern, coupled with my father's lack of access to a computer, not to mention the skills to use one, finalized my decision to travel from Boston to Los Angeles the day after my obstetrics gynecology shelf exam. Unemptied boxes filled my parents' home, but my designated room had the essentials, a bed, dresser, and desk. With little time to waste, I drove to Staples to print the financial assistance application. My parents did not have a computer or a printer. Then, my father called the hospital to retrieve some of his personal hospital identification information. The operator spoke to him in English, so I took the lead. I was accustomed to this role of interpreter. I had been playing it for well over a decade now. July 2nd would be the day. Because my father did not have the financial flexibility to take a day off work, we planned to visit the hospital during his one-hour lunch break. At the time, he worked as a patient transporter, helping patients get to and from their dialysis appointments. When he arrived home, we drove to the local hospital, accompanied by my mother. With documents in hand, tax returns, identification cards, billing statements, the application, and more, I mentally prepared for pushback. It felt like we were going into battle. Thankfully, the visit proved uneventful. The window receptionist reviewed our documents and said that we would hear of the hospital's decision in a few weeks. Having done all I could for the moment, I returned to my studies in Boston. I heard from my father 15 days later, while on my psychiatry rotation back in Boston. He could not read the hospital letter he received. So he sent me a picture. I let out a tremendous sigh of relief. Our application had been accepted and approved for a 100% charity care discount. I called him to share the news. His response wavered from disbelief to gratefulness, as did mine. Simultaneously, I felt disheartened by his shock. No one in their most vulnerable moment, when on the brink of death or financial ruin, should be surprised to find that the healthcare system shows a tinge of compassion. However, the letter said more. Please note, this charity approval is for the hospital charges only and does not include any doctors or ambulance charges for which you may be billed. The physician and imaging bills we had received, which totaled about $8,000, remained active. My father called the providers directly. They did not offer charity care. We could begin a payment plan, but even the monthly charges were prohibitively expensive. I had no energy left. We had been at this for months already, and another one of my shelf exams would be administered soon. We conceded. My father put his earnings toward mortgage payments, utilities, food, and gas instead. A few mysterious phone calls followed from what my father believed were collection agencies, but he did not really understand them. The calls later died down. Maybe they gave up. Maybe they will resume after the pandemic. Either way, the ordeal had temporarily come to an end. The current system of doling out charity care in the U.S. is overly burdensome on patients and their families, especially when hospitals fail to disclose their financial assistance processes, a not-in-common practice. My father is one of many patients who have arrived at a hospital with an emergency and returned home to exorbitant medical bills. Loosely requiring nonprofit hospitals to notify patients about financial assistance policies is clearly inadequate. States should require hospitals to meet a minimum threshold of charity care relative to community need and hospital income. At this time, six states have a minimum threshold for community benefit spending dollars which includes charity care, among other spending categories. Greater regulatory clarity from the Internal Revenue Service and oversight of the charity care provided by nonprofit hospitals is another possibility. This can include mandated reporting on the number of patients served by financial assistance and other community benefits, currently an optional metric, and the number of patients who qualified for charity care in each fiscal year. Disallowing or revising many of the vague categories that qualify as community benefit spending may also funnel hospital dollars to where they are most needed. Legislative action to accomplish these efforts and more is an alternative. Ensuring that hospitals honor their tax exempt nonprofit status has been a bipartisan endeavor. Even Senator Chuck Grassley advocated for greater enforcement of hospital charity care in a 2017 op ed. Perhaps this is one health policy topic the 117th Congress can negotiate effectively. In addition, hospitals must ensure transparent and equitable access to charity care by updating their patient communication strategies. Per IRS guidelines, hospital financial assistance policies must be made available to patients in their native language. However, as evidenced by our experience, hospitals sometimes fail to comply with that requirement. Hospitals also are currently required to make paper copies of the financial assistance policy available on request. This requirement is particularly important for older patients and people of color who are less likely to own and use a computer or have access to broadband internet because of systemic barriers. However, patients often do not know that they are entitled to these paper documents and thus fail to request them. One solution would be for hospitals to discharge all low income, perhaps as calculated by their own financial assistance policies, uninsured patients with a physical copy of both the policy and its accompanying application. Ideally, the solutions will become moot during the Biden administration's tenure. The ultimate goal for patients traversing the healthcare system's complicated financial web is not enhanced charity care but affordable and comprehensive health insurance coverage. A federal public option seems unlikely, at least within the next few years. But expanding Medicaid, increasing private marketplace subsidies, and incentivizing states to expand their own insurance marketplaces are feasible aims. In the meantime, and in the likely event that many are left uninsured even after President Biden's actions, we must revisit existing health care policy. My father's quest highlights one area ripe for improvement. Obtaining charity care can be onerous for patients and their families, even though it is meant to alleviate financial harm inflicted on low-income, uninsured patients. By chance, I had the skills required to partially help my father through his episode. Unfortunately, this is not the case for many patients who qualify for charity care, but are instead doomed to calls. From collection agencies and faded for bankruptcy. Now is the moment to remove the barriers to the healthcare system's financial safety net, not just for my father, but for all patients.
0: That was David Velasquez reading his essay, Charity Care Needs to Be Better Than This. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.